Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, I think, oh, um, 
think about what this guy's been through. You know, he, he interviewed, didn't get the job, Beltron did, and then obviously what happened with Beltron. And then um, and then he gets the job in the middle of this unbelievably weird world that we're living in right now, and he has to kind of make it work. So uh, with that said, you know, my initial observations of Louie, let, let me tell you what I like. Um, I like the fact that he has them playing aggressive baseball. Um, you know, they have nine stolen bases as a team, which uh, is good for second in the National League right now. So that, that's a good thing. Um, it seems like, you know, he will start the runners. He will, you know, I'm not sure if he's telling guys if he has a steal sign or just leaves them on their own. But he certainly encourages, uh, heads, you know, aggressive play, which I love. So I, I give him credit there. When it comes to pitching, um, as far as I'm concerned, I think he pulls the plug on guys at the right time. Um, I haven't seen him stay with guys too long necessarily where you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, why did he leave that guy in there? Um, you know, it seems like he has a really good feel for that. Uh, look at today by way of example. You know, last night the Mets had a, a, a I say with air quotes, comfortable lead, four-run lead um, going into the ninth. So he decided to not send Seth Lugo out for the ninth. He sent Justin Wilson in to finish the game thinking that he might need Lugo today, and lo and behold, he did. Um, Lugo came in, and I like the way he's handled the people. Um, he hasn't publicly shamed Edwin Diaz by saying he's no longer the closer. He's kind of, well, you know, we'll figure it out and all that, and it's obvious Diaz is no longer the closer, but he's bringing Diaz along, and, you know, it was seventh inning last week, now it's the eighth, kind of rebuilding him, and it just seems like Rojas has a good way with people. And you heard that. You know, you heard that when he got the job is a lot of the players were saying, look, you know, we know this guy. We love this guy. He's great with people. And you're kind of seeing it. So those are the positives. The one thing, Louis, as if you were sitting next to me, I, I would say, Louis, we have to talk about something, though, buddy. What we have to talk about is a couple times this happened where he had three catchers on the roster and he let Tomas Nito hit, and this is in two different games, he let Tomas Nito hit with the game on the line in very critical situations when he had, I don't remember the exact situation, I believe he had Dom on the bench. In fact, I know he did the first time he had Dom on the bench. Um, and the second time, he, you know, he had, uh, he had available pinch hitters. And so the question is, look, you know, Nito, I know he had a couple hits today. Um, not sure what he's trying to achieve there. You know, you have three catchers on the roster. Be a bit more aggressive there. Don't know why he would not pinch hit for him. And he was asked the questions in the post game, and he gave some bland answer about, you know, how he had faith in Nito. Look, no, Nito can't hit. We know that. And so my only thing with, with Rojas so far has been that. It's been, while I think he knows when to pull the plug on the pitchers, I think he, he's, he's entrusted offensively some guys who really don't deserve that trust a little too much. I know he, he's, He's been playing – the whole thing with Nito, just, you know, those two situations kind of really got to me. But in general, you know, if that's the only debit you see on a guy, um, I'm going to give Louie a B-plus at this point, a solid B-plus bordering on an A-minus. Um, so those are my initial observations. Mike, how about yourself? Uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, uh, I'm in total agreement with the B-plus. He's been put uh, in an unusual circumstance to begin the season. Uh I think he's uh, adjusting to the job. I think he's adjusting to the conditions of playing uh, and having to answer to the New York media. Uh, that's that's not easily done. 
But, uh, you know, starting with Luis Rojas, uh, that just makes all the thought bubbles explode uh, over tonight's conversation, you know, because it's really going to bleed into everything. In the meantime, let's just try to kill a couple of minutes if we, uh, while we wait for Sam. Hopefully everything's well, uh, but we were warned he was going to be a little bit tardy. Uh, Rich, the 2020 Major League Baseball season uh, with regards to COVID, you know, uh, they're, they're testing temperatures, so let, let's follow suit and, and, and take their temperature as well. The number of games that have been canceled, I believe, is up to 24. Uh, the Miami Marlins are almost unrecognizable, and now you have the outbreak with the St. Louis Cardinals. Cub games have been affected. We already know about the Phillies previously in the Yankee series getting canceled. So, you know, uh, the general question is when we deal with the micro and the macro, you know, do you think we're going to get to the finish line? Does this get worse? Does it get better? All I can say is that watching on TV, these these players are doing a real bad job of uh, distancing and protocol and everything of that nature. <laughs> what do you say you? Um, I, I think whether or not they get to the finish line is entirely a function of the players themselves. Uh, because if you think about it, they're, they're testing these guys. I, I think it's every other day. I've kind of lost track. I believe it's every other day at this point. And, and the positive rate has been very low, but think about where the positives are coming from. It, it's not, I'm not encouraging high-fiving. I'm not encouraging spitting and all the things that they're not supposed to do. But at the same time, the outbreaks have come from inappropriate conduct away from the field. If they're testing these guys and they say, look, okay, we don't have any positive tests on this team, fantastic. We're going to get on a plane. We're going to go somewhere. We're going to get off the plane with our mask on. We're going to go to the hotel. The rooms have been sanitized. Stay in your room. We'll bring you food, all that kind of thing. Get to the ballpark, play your game, you know, rinse, lather, repeat. It seems to me, and it, it, it looks, and I'm actually referencing what's been happening. The outbreaks have come, like I said, and we all know what happened. The outbreaks have come from two teams that did not follow protocol. So what that tells me is, at least through a quarter of the season, if these guys follow protocol, we can get to the finish line. There might be a couple more positives. There's no way to know. You can go to a hotel. You can be doing everything right. You can go to a hotel, and I get it. You know, you can get it there somehow. Sure, that can happen. But history best predicts the future. We've gotten through a quarter of the season where not one player has gotten it, to my knowledge, from doing the right thing, and it just happened. The teams that have gotten it have gotten it from inappropriate conduct, and then it spread. And so – if they heeded the warnings, why not? Why can't we get to the finish line? If they and if you watch, sure, you know the Mets didn't. The Mets were high fiving after the game today, and they shouldn't be doing that. But if you saw Pete Alonso's home run last night, you know they kind of stood in two lines and like made noise as he ran through the line. If they're trying their best. It's not perfect, but I don't think I honestly, Mike, I don't believe the risk comes from on the field. I don't believe the risk comes from baseball-related activities like getting on a plane and going to a hotel. I think the risk comes from non, non-approved, so to speak, activities like going to restaurants and going to these clubs of ill repute and casinos. That's where the risk comes from. They shouldn't be doing it anyway. So if they can police themselves, yes, I do think they'll get to the finish line. Uh, I do believe they'll press forward. You know, uh, the ramifications, 
Mm. To be determined. So let's cycle back to baseball, Rich, and and let's reverse engineer what's going on. Let's get back to the bullpen. Let's get back into the ninth inning. Seth Lugo, uh, Edwin Diaz. Over the last six games, and I took this stat from SNY, I believe, yesterday. Well, maybe maybe it was today's game. But over the last six games, 22 innings pitched, a 1.09 whip and a 0.82 ERA. Now, here's the thing. You know, there's a couple of questions here. Should Luis Rojas continue, continue massaging the ninth inning? Uh, does he approach this with the old fireman's mentality? You put out the fire when needed, seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. Now, Diaz had his third straight outing, didn't allow a run, did give up two hits, and he struck out three. He pitched the eighth inning, Rich, and he uh, he threw 26 pitches. Seth Lugo comes in to the ninth. He throws 13 pitches. You know, so amongst those questions that I already threw at you, uh, should there be a definitive decision made here to give Seth Lugo the ninth inning? Or like I say, should Luis Rojas continue massaging the late innings? You, you know, Mike, I think that decision's been made. I think in, in Louis's mind, Seth Lugo, Seth Lugo is the closer. And again, I point to last night. He had a four-run lead. He had Lugo in the eighth. After there wasn't a four-run lead going into the eighth. Um, he had Lugo on, and then when the mess opened it up, he took Lugo out, and he let Wilson close it so he would have Lugo today. Those are the actions you take for a closer. I need my guy available tomorrow. I just said the words, my guy. I think what you're seeing is, you know, Louis trying to be careful with Edwin's, uh, Edwin Diaz's uh, mental state, which he should. Edwin Diaz is a very important part of the team. Um, but if you look at what's happening, Seth Lugo is the de facto closer right now. Um, now, that comes with an asterisk because let's not forget, Seth Lugo is pitching with, you know, with, with a partially torn UCL. And um, so he, in general, will not be available two nights in a row, two days in a row. Uh, again, he, was, he had a quick inning yesterday, so they took him out, and they were able to do it, but that's not going to happen on, on a regular basis. So, but for key games... Seth Lugo, I think, I believe they've already made that decision, is the closer for now. That is subject to change, but he's the best option. I think they know it, we know it, and it gives them the best chance to win. And when Lugo's not available, I I really think you'll see Justin Wilson. Maybe if Diaz continues to throw well, maybe Diaz when necessary, but I think Lugo is the primary closer at this point. I think he's the closer with the one exception being when he can't go multiple days because of his, his elbow issue. Uh, but I think he is the, he's the closer until he can't go that day. And therein lies the rub, uh, his durability. And as you say, back-to-back appearances. That's his biggest question mark. Uh, he's already proven uh, his ability. Uh, I think you did on on that. But I would continue, as I say, massaging the late innings. I would still let Diaz entertain a safe situation in the ninth inning. Uh, Again, 
not making any definitive decisions. But if I'm leaning one way or the other, yeah, obviously I'm leaning Seth Lugo. It's just a matter of his durability and how many times a week will you be able to call upon him. Uh, Dylan Batances, he's another one, off-season acquisition. Today he pitched, didn't allow any runs. Uh, him and, as you say, Mr. Wilson, you know, who, who's – Who's the third guy in? Who's the third most dependable person in this in this group? Probably. Hmm. Well, you know what? If Diaz can continue, it's Diaz, and and if not, um, your options are Gesellman. You've got Hughes, who um, who certainly looks good. You know, he, he's got a good resume with him. He's not a kid. He's thirty five years old. Um, he's got a good resume, so. Obviously, his his sample size is pretty small with the Mets, but um, it could be Hughes. It seems like you know they're giving him more and more uh, leverage like situations. So uh, it could be Hughes. It could be Diaz. Um, I'll tell you who it isn't, though. At least for me, <laughs> it isn't Diaz. It isn't Patances because I, I look. I loved the signing, and I still love the fact the guy's on the team. But come on, he's a big, imposing closer, former closer. He, you know, when he was a Yankee, uh, before he had the 2019 season where he, you know, had missed all but one game, he was throwing 99-100, and then he had a wipeout curveball to go with it. Have you seen anything that looks like that so far? I haven't. I mean, he's throwing 92-93 right now regularly. It's not like, you know, he, he's having a bad day or something and, and he's down that low. He is. He's a good eight mile, miles an hour off where he was when he was a Yankee. And I haven't seen any wipeout curveballs. And if you look at his outing today, he didn't look dominant to me at all. He got kind of, I think he got kind of lucky. I think the guy, I forget who it was into the double play. He kind of, he kind of reached out, reached to the outside corner and rolled one over to short, a Taylor made double play ball, which, you know, good. Okay. But it's not what the Mets thought they were. At least I don't think it's what they thought they were getting when they got Batances. They weren't signing a guy who, you know, can can deceive a hitter and get a guy to roll over one off the outside corner into a double play. They they wanted a guy who's a you know blow your blow you away kind of a guy, um, and, and it's just not there. And I don't know what the heck it is with Diaz, but tell me what you see. Other than the volume being down and and the the pitches not having the kind of break he used to have, he he just looks hittable. He just looks hittable. Am I wrong in that? No, you just stole the word right out of my mouth. Hittable. Uh, that's one of my pet peeves. He didn't give up a hit today, uh, but he is giving up more hits than in his pitch. And, uh, he, again, you nailed it. For a guy his size, he's imposing. Uh, he should be intimidating batters out there. Uh, instead, you know, he walked the batter today. That brings his number up to four in uh, only four and a third innings pitch. So that's concerning that being hittable. Uh, maybe, you know, he's 32 years old. Maybe he is at the end of his run. You know, uh, relief pitchers have that shelf life. And then there's that other oddity about relief pitchers, the every other year factor. I don't know what to make of it. I really don't, Rich. Uh, it's, you know, it it, it points back to the offseason and how they decide to spend their money and how they decide not to spend their money. And so far, Batanzas, uh, is not, you know, uh, 
not necessarily offering the Mets a, a great reward on their investment. So I, I'm with you. It's a little mind-boggling. So if you will, we'll transition to the starting rotation. And we'll, you know what? Let's start off on a good note. Jacob DeGrom today continues to just be masterful out there. I think a lot of people were hyperventilating when everyone was taking a look at his middle finger. Uh, but it was still, nevertheless, a good outing, you know, not one of those superior efforts, but a good outing nonetheless. I tweeted on a Mexican podcast on Twitter today, uh, Tom Seaver's start on August 9th of 1969, and he gave up two home runs, one to Hank Aaron and the other one to Orlando Cepeda, uh, and he only lasted seven innings, you know, so not one of his greatest days, but he, uh, he worked himself a victory. Uh, so Jacob DeGrom, let's, uh, let's go there, Rich. Well, you know, what more can you say? I mean, the guy is clearly, you know, the best pitcher in baseball at this point, I think. And I think a lot of people would agree. Um, he's dominant, you know, he, he's, he's throwing harder than he ever has. You know, that, that's kind of a played out thing, but, but it's true. You know, he's hitting one-on-one on the gun. He's consistently in the high nineties with the fastball. The slider is just devastating. You know, it, it comes in. Looking, you know, looking like a fastball and just, you know, fades away to a right in, it, to a right in, in on the lefty. Um, his changeup is just, he, I think he toys with hitters with that. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, did you like that one-on-one? Well, here comes one at 90. Try to adjust to that. And then, oh, and, and if, I don't, if I haven't completely boggled your mind with the other three pitches, here's a curveball that, that he keeps in reserve. You know, he has a curveball. That he keeps in reserve, that's probably better than, you know, most of the curveballs that pitchers have in Major League Baseball. And, that, and that's his fourth pitch. So the, the thing that amazes me, Mike, and I know that this stat has been thrown around, uh, DeGrom, obviously back-to-back Cy Youngs, 2018-2019, and the Mets were 30-37 and 37 in those starts. I mean, come on. How does that even make sense? You know, <laughs> it, it's just... You know, hard luck pitcher, okay, yeah, I get that. We all get that. But at the same time, it's like, you got to be kidding me. You know, how, how could it be that bad, you know? Um, but but on the other hand, you know, DeGrom, he just continues to show why he's the best. And today, like you said, today's a great example. Um, today's an example of a day when he, he certainly blew him away in the first, but he had a very difficult second inning. He had what he called the hot spot. He didn't want to use the word blister in the post game. He called it a hot spot. Um, he was struggling with it, but he made the necessary adjustments. You know, he, whatever he had to do, he did it. Um, this is a guy not only blessed with great stuff, but a guy who's a, who has an incredible competitive nature, and um, and he finds a way. Like, and I think somebody tweeted, and I thought it was great that when DeGrom doesn't have his best stuff, he's still better than 90, 95% of the pitchers out there. And, and today he didn't, but, and he's add to it, you know, with the, with the finger issue, but he found a way to get these guys out. Sure. He served up a two run home run to, um, to, uh, the first baseman, his name escapes me, the, the guy who's played for Milwaukee. Uh, he served up the two run home run, but at the same time, he was able to gut through five innings, 98 pitches, and that's a bad day for him. That's a day like, you know, people are questioning, oh, is he okay and all that. Five innings, two runs, and that's, and that's probably the worst effort he's had in a, in a while, or, or at least tied with that. So, yeah, he, he's just amazing. He's a treat. And I think it was Keith who said, or someone said, that it's a treat to get, this guy, to, get to watch this guy pitch every five days. Yeah, the perpetrator was uh, Jesus Aguilar. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, yeah, so he'll go down and uh, – 
that channels. So uh, after the Grom, <laughs> after the Grom, we have somewhat of a dilemma here. It's Rick Porcello did have a, a bounce back game. Uh, the game, the sort of game that I've been crossing my fingers that he would have here with the Mets. Uh, that said, Michael Walker, ten day IL. Stroman is still out. Mats is still immature. And really, between DeGrom, it's David Patterson. Those two are, are really holding this rotation together. Take it away. Very true. Um, you know, the rotation, when, when Syndergaard went down, you had a concern, at least I did, that we were going to see more of Porcello. I, he scares me. Um, and, again, nothing against the guys. won 150 major league games, but – he had a, you know, he's been bad. I mean, let's face it. He he was bad in 17. He was bad in 19. Yes, he won the Cy Young in 16, and he had a better year in 18. So you know, he kind of bopped around a bit. But but in 19, he had a he had a terribly error way, You know, well over five, and um, and so I was worried about seeing a lot of him in the rotation. But that's what happened. You know, Syndergaard goes down. Stroman goes down. Now you've got Waka and Porcello as regular parts of the rotation. Now Waka's down. So the only thing you can hope for is that Stroman, he's going to throw a simulated game early this week. If they can get Stroman back by next weekend, then okay. So then you've got Mats, Mats, uh, DeGrom, and Stroman, and then Peterson, and you have to cobble together that that fifth spot somehow um, with Porcello. And I don't know. I, I, I was never a fan of the Porcello signing. I thought he was a typical guy that you get on the cheap. And while sometimes that works, you know, sometimes you take a shot at a guy who had a bad year, you know, he, you, you can get him for a little less money, and then that guy bounces back. There was something about Porcello that I, I just did not feel that. And I know he had a good start. You know, great. He had a, in fact, he had a very good start on Wednesday. Um, but let's see what happens now. The Mets, I'll, one thing I will say is, you know, the Mets are clearly going to be relying on him because he's not going anywhere. You know, he's established now. He is the fourth starter on this team. He is absolutely the fourth starter on this team. So, good luck. I don't know how long Waka is going to be out. You know, you have to be concerned because he's had an injury history. Um, is this going to be 10 days? You know, when I hear shoulder swelling for a pitcher, I generally think it's going to be longer than 10 days. But, but your original point is exactly right. What was, oh, why are they signing all these pitchers? They have too many starters, all this kind of thing. That conversation is out the window at this point. You know, at this point, they're they're looking for starting pitching, and so it's it's concerning, right? The Mets had so much, and now they're trying to they're trying to find guys to take these starts and, and hoping for the best. You know, it's You're too bad to... that the Royals took a flyer on that Matt Harvey guy. <laughs> you, you never cease to amaze me, ladies and gentlemen. The COO of the Metsian podcast, Sam Maxwell. Everyone, uh, how are you, brother? Yeah, I. I got to do some serious operational analysis, but uh, anyway, uh, just going right into the starting pitching talk. What, what's too bad about Waka is that he he did he he looked like he uh, was starting to figure it out some. You know, he 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 did give up some runs, but that that uh, game against the Braves, there were a bunch of dinkers and bleeders, and then he settled down and saved the bullpen. And I was thinking the same thing with the last start, that he seemed to limit the damage, which is a good thing, of course. Uh, but now we're just going to have to scramble for, for depth again. And it's just like you said, Rich. I mean, we hear this we, – we you tend to hear this every year. That's the narrative with whenever we see them signing starting pitching. And it always 
tends to work itself out, as the old saying goes. Uh, Rick Porcello, you know, he had that terrible first start. It was the first start. It was the second. I forget exactly what it was, but he's settled down a little bit. Um, and there's just there's been some surprising moments, albeit even though they're five and seven. Um, uh, like my issue has not been the starting pitching. And Mike, you and I talked about it earlier that uh, you know we yes with with Louis Rojas and I, I did catch some of what you guys said earlier about that. Um, you know he's new. He's not going to be perfect. But the, the aggression that I've been seeing, uh, the, the aggression that I've been seeing uh, with, well, on the base pads is such a breath of fresh air. And I, I like that he's trying to push the envelope instead of just letting, like Sandy Alderson used to do with, with, with that old Bash Brothers way, which is get two on and hit a three-run home run. Um, and sometimes, occasionally, you used to see it with Mickey Callaway, uh, but... It, it, it really just was never consistent enough. Um, and so I like that about Louis Rojas, but the start, you know, with the starting pitching, that's not the issues. The issues continue to be the lack of proper operational skills on Jeff Wilpon's part that expose how, how, how terrible baseball IQ they are from the top all the way down to the bottom. And I'm thinking about that Brandon Nimmo slide the other night where they ended up losing the game by one run. He should have been scoring. And that's, yes, we all have brain farts, but there's these little things that continuously get exposed, uh, whether it's, it's the bullpen, whether it's little fundamental things of that nature that I cannot place on Louis Rojas because this has been going on since Jeff Wilpon took over operational duties. Of this ball team. Very good. Sam, we also talked ninth inning, eighth inning, Edwin Diaz, Seth Lugo. Uh, where do you sit on the closest situation? And I was able to catch well, what you said earlier about that, Rich, about how he has not been bad mouthing these guys uh, and that it kind of just worked itself out. Obviously, Lugo's the closer now. Diaz is not the closer. Uh, Diaz has been having some good moments in some less leverage, you know, high leverage uh, positions, but certainly, you know, it was 4-2 to two today. He needed to hold that score the way it was. And he could have, you know, the tying run was at, uh, at the plate. And how many times do we see that with a 4-2 to two score? Edwin Diaz gives up the tying run. So, He's been making some strides. Do I think that means that he needs the ninth inning at any point? No, I don't. I think that things are starting to fall into place when it comes to the bullpen. But Tansis had a good outing today. Uh, and we haven't even mentioned the, the sleeper hits of the bullpen so far. Jared Hughes, uh, Chris Shreve, who I didn't realize was a Yankee a, a couple of years ago, if not last year. Um, and and uh, I'm, I know I'm, I'm – Facing on some, some names. I don't know if Gazelman got in any games this weekend. I'd be interested to see that. I know he's back in the bullpen. Uh, Brad Brack is coming back, if not already back. So all of a sudden, this bullpen's been pretty strong. What we've been saying we needed uh, out of it. And, and you know, I, I got a little flack for thinking that Familia had loaded the bases the other night, but it was actually Paul Seawald. And I, I said something about it being in his contract. And uh, Familia, he, 
he's made some strides, but he still has certain moments that he, he his teammates need to get his back. I believe that was tonight, not last night. That was, that was today, excuse me, not yesterday. Sometimes it all blends together when I'm on the road like I am. Um, so, yeah, that, that's when, you, you know, you're mentioning the bullpen. That's one of the things that come to my head is both the fact that Diaz has been settling in. Lugo is just outstanding, just absolutely outstanding, one of the best relievers in baseball. We have quite, quite possibly we have the best starting pitcher in baseball and the best reliever in baseball. Um, famous last words, but knock on wood, it, it's, it's, uh, it's been really nice, and, and it's been nice to see those names that we always talk about on here that we think fall right into the Wilpon category of names that we just – the, the uh, Acostas and the Nieveses the ones that we that are just scream Wilpons, they've been doing some pretty solid jobs. And, and, you know, they could themselves become names that we speak of fondly for years to come. Let's talk offense, gentlemen. Uh, let's, uh, let's give out some love. J.D. Davis, pick it up, Rich. Sorry, I had it on mute. Um, J.D. Davis has been, you know – He's probably been their most consistent, you know, offensive player. Conforto's had a good year, too, but it just seems like J.D. is really finding himself offensively. And what I mean by that, um, going the other way, you know, he had a a sacrifice fly in an important situation. It it just seems like he's becoming a very heady player. Um, It seems like he's the kind of guy who will cut his swing down when necessary and adjust to the game situation. And goodness knows the man has power. You know, think about that three-run home run last night. Um, You give him one belt high, you know, over the plate or over the outside corner, he's going to take that sucker, and he's going to deposit it in in right field. And if you come into the guy, you know, if you don't miss inside enough, if you're on the inner half of the plate, he'll pull a home run. But, again, the thing about J.D. Davis, goes the other way when necessary, goes the other way when the pitch is there, but also – he seems to have a knowledge of the game situation to do the, do what's necessary. You know, if it means shortening his swing, hitting the ball in the air for a sack fly, whatever it is. You know, he said the same thing. He said it um, last night in the postgame. When he came up and he hit that sack fly, there were men on first and third, went out. And he said, look, the last thing I want to do is hit the ball on the ground for a double play. I knew I just wanted to get the ball in the air, make sure we got a run, and lo and behold, that's what he did. When I hear stuff like that, the, you know, if it were an emoticon, it would be colon capital D. I smile ear to ear on that because it means the guy is paying attention. He's adjusting to the game situation, and he's not up there swinging from his ass, you know, which there's way too much of in the game these days. He's not up there just trying to hit a three-run home run every time. He knew in that situation they had to get a run, and he delivered that run with the sack fly. So anyway, Davis has been fantastic. And, and how about his defense? You know, the guy – he struggled in left field. He, he was less than serviceable, I'm going to say. I don't have his DRS in front of me, but uh, it, it probably wasn't really good. At third base, he's looked good. Um, he certainly has a cannon of a throwing arm. He's made some excellent plays. So, yeah, you know, J.D. Davis on offense, absolutely. I, I think he's becoming a really, really smart and really good player. And, and I will say this, Mike, you know, we all rip Brody. I do, you do, everybody does you got to kind of tip your cap for getting J.D. Davis. I mean, the guy is a player. Uh, I, I, I always did like the acquisition. You guys remember me saying, I believe it was last season at spring training, 
when the other guys got hurt, I was like, they can take their sweet ass time getting back. My money is on J.D. Davis. That being said, Sam, team that features Jeff McNeil, Michael Conforto, Pete Alonzo, J.D. Davis uh, is presently on a 13-game hitting streak. He leads the team in RBIs. Uh, he also leads the team in hitting uh, with the 319 average going into today's game. I'm not sure how that much fluctuated yet. Here we are, J.D. Davis, take it away. Jonathan Davis Davis. We're gonna have a loop back around to what that what what that's been all about because I, I, I must have missed something and just been seeing people tweet about it all the time. But you know, when when it comes to his offensive game, I mean what what can I add that would be better than what Rich just said? I mean, the guy has a smart baseball acumen and I think that the fact that his defense has been getting better is also a, a just an indictment of how good his his uh, uh, baseball acumen has been. It's just seeing, I mean, both him and Jeff McNeil, Jeff McNeil made strides in the outfield when we all thought he wasn't going to, to do well. Um, it's just been for both of them to basically, you know, kind of pull the Jordan and go, all right, all right, you know, that's, uh, sorry, I've been watching a lot of Last Dance lately. All right, all right, that's what you think about me? Well, uh, you know, I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. And he, they just go ahead and prepare and completely surprise uh, completely surprise us. Uh, he was one for two today, raising his average to 327. Uh, On-base percentage, 414. Slugging, 531. Outstanding numbers. Uh you know, nice way to start. Nice way to start a season, you guys. The love affair with Andres Jimenez has begun. All of a sudden, no one's speaking about Ahmed Rosario anymore. So wherever you want to go with that, Rich. Well, you know, the, the, how about this? Let's start here. The, the Mets have been knocked, and you know, rightfully so, perhaps, for not having a deep farm system, right? And and they really don't. Um, they have some guys at the lower levels, you know, guys like Beatty and, and guys they've drafted like Mangum. Um, okay, you know, th- these guys hopefully will move through the system, and they have drafted very well. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know a lot about the draft. I, I read about it, of course, but I don't know these guys in college. I don't know who, oh, who my should have been the first pick guy is. I just don't follow that, you know, my, that amateur baseball closely enough, the college and, and high school level. But what I've read is that people who do, in fact, do that give Brody a lot of credit for the draft, that he's drafted well. Okay, so with the system being thin, the one exception to that is the Mets are deep at shortstop. You've got a 24-year-old Ahmed Rosario who is struggling right now. We all know that. Ahmed, he's looked today, he looked horrible at the plate. He looked like 2017 Ahmed, chasing everything out of the strike zone. Uh, long swing, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but they've got him. They've got Jimenez, and then you've got Ronnie Mauricio. So, for some reason, shortstop is a position where the Mets are very deep. And so the question becomes, what do you do? And, I, and Jimenez right now is the, the favorite child. He's the golden-haired boy right now. Um, and why not? You know, the guy, what, what did we talk about before? The guy is a heady player. At 21 years old, this kid knows the darn game. You know, that play he made today, you know, when the ball got by Alonzo, here, here's Jimenez playing second base, 
chasing it down the right field line to make sure the runner doesn't get to second base, right? So he does that. He will bunt for a base hit. He will steal a base. He, he even has, you know, a little bit of, I don't think he has a lot of power, but he has some extra base power. He can certainly hit one down the line. So I think it's fair that Met fans are infatuated with him at the moment. Um, I think with good reason. Right now, he's getting plenty of playing time, of course, you know, with, with Cano out. He's playing a lot of second base. But So I have a couple questions for you guys to play with. What happens when Cano comes back? You know exactly what I'm thinking here, that there's a quote-unquote you-have-to-play-Cano thing that seems to be out there. So what happens then? Um, and so what do you do with this kid? I mean, is he just going to sit on the bench when Cano's there? Do you try to rotate him around, get him some, some run at shortstop, get him some run at third, get him some run at, at second base, you know, give, give everybody a day off? And then what do you do in the off season? Do you look to trade a Rosario or, or trade somebody, trade one of those three people from the position where you have the most positional depth? What do you, what do you think, guys? Sam? Well, you know, I think he's going to be in center field. I might have just said that to trigger – uh, Rich, but um, <laughs> no, I I think just to to jump on the bandwagon too. I mean, I was, today I was hearing how he's being compared to Omar Vizquel, and I believe Venezuela. Correct? He's from Venezuela. Correct. Right, and and so you know, I, I they were saying how that that's just got to be a thrill for him to be compared to to such a, 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 a great baseball Venezuelan. And not only that, you know, we've been hearing about his defense, uh, but he's been really sharp at the plate too. And I, I, I know that you just said that J.D. Davis is leading it, but and I guess it's just the, uh, the at-bats that are not qualifying yet. But I, I think he's batting like something 344 or, or something along those lines. And that's, of course, probably going to uh, lessen. He's not going to be – most likely challenging for a, a batting title, but um, it's just been a breath of fresh air. And what do you do with Rosario? Um, I'm not about to say that he needs to be going to center field. He's probably going to be there unless Steve Cohen takes over ASAP. Uh, but you, 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 well, I, I think what's the, one of the things that has become evident is that it's just not as big of a deal. Obviously you want him both on the defensive side and the offensive side to fix some of these holes in his game. Um, but luckily the pressure is not on like it was in 17 and 18. And he's got a lot of, of good sound ball players around him that can kind of take a little bit of the load off. So he can just go back to doing what he did last year, which is hit 287 with some power. I think yes. Jimenez poses uh, a good problem. I mean, this is a good problem to have, but a strange one nonetheless. Do you, you know, try to devise a trade package that would include Ahmed Rosario, that would include a Brandon Nimmo, etc.? Do you try to pull something like that off? Uh, I don't know. But the return of Robinson Cano, well, and, and, and just sorry, sorry to, to hop on there, but like you do have to think from a historical perspective that at some point one of these guys has to be Hubie Brooks, you know. At, at some point, I mean, you know, they were lucky that they got Yohannes Cespedes without anybody being 
uh, Hubie Brooks. And generally speaking, they've avoided trading major league talent. And, and it's also the way it, it, everything trends these days in terms of some of these trades that, that you know, cost-controlled young players that have not made their name yet uh, are very much valued. And there's less major league for major leagues going, going back and forth. But you, you got to, you know, as, as attached to this team as we get, and we do like the camaraderie that Ahmed Rosario brings, you do have to wonder, again, going back and using that name as an example, somebody's got to be Hubie Brooks. Well, if in fact, you know, this, this is all theorized, but if in fact they move forward and, and, and trade him, Rosario, that is, you know, you have to give a receiving team those uh, controllable years. So if they're going to do it, I guess this is the off season to do it. Uh, but what I was going to say, the return of Robinson Cano means there's going to be casualties in somebody's playing time. And if I'm not mistaken, they still need to reduce the rosters one more time, Rich. Is that correct? Actually, they made a decision to stay with 28. Um, gotcha. it, there, it was going to be 26. You're correct in what you said. But based on all the injuries and all that stuff, there was an agreement this week to keep it at 28. Gotcha. So when Cano comes back, yeah, obviously we want to be strong up the middle with young guys and this and that. But we also have somewhat of a glut at DH now. So how Luis Rojas massages all this is going to be very interesting to watch unfold. Uh, outside of that, you know, we're stuck with Cano. We just can't move him. I, I know he got off to a good start, but yeah, Man, yeah, just that immovable object. You you would like to, and ideally, go with Jimenez and and Ahmed Rosario and this and you know. But they, they you know, what Cano is just that anchor uh, embedded in the sea in, in the sea floor that you just can't move, that you just can't budge. Uh, and, and you know, we're just hanging listlessly in the water with this guy. So I I don't know where else to go with that. So I will open the floor. I really have not much else. So Rich, open the floor. Did we did, did we miss anything? I mean I'll, yeah, I'll we go on. No, I, I I think you nailed it though. It's just like as as much fun as it is to watch him hit when he's going strong. It, it's just whether it's injuries. The, the way age plays into injuries, what, whatever it is, you know, we're talking about the defense of the middle too, that it's just yet again, this trade continues to rear its ugly head and remind us that it was most likely an ill-advised trade, whether it's Edwin Diaz or Robinson Cano. So Rich, pick it up. I mean, and, and include the DH in this. How do you want to see this play out? Well, it's it's an interesting one because, you know, in the current era of baseball, let's face it, it's everybody's playing stratomatic. It's all about offense. And I guess the thinking will be when Cano comes back, you know, he was hitting well over 300. He was the hottest hitter they had. Uh, we all know the subtleties involved with Cano, so he's probably going to play. So who's that going to call? Is he going to DH? Well, you know, the team's got a lot of DHs, you know, quite frankly. You've got Dom. Where's Dom going to play? If you Dom and Pete, obviously, they can't be on the field at the same time um, because Jeff McNeil is going to be your left fielder at this point. So Dom and Pete, 
one of them isn't playing, is that person the DH? Um, there's going to be an outcry for Jimenez to continue to play, which would mean Cano would be the DH. But you have two. It's what you just said, Mike. You, you have too many guys who would be great DHs. They can't all DH at the same time. So, so what are they going to do with this thing? Do you want to go with? Do you want to say, you know, look, we're a better team with the young, speedy, good glove guy out there with great range, or do you want to sacrifice that, you know, for Cano? But, but think about. Think about a couple of the games that happened. Think about the Washington game with Porcello. Remember that inning? I think it was the eighth inning where J.D. Davis made that great play, and then um, Guillorme made a great play, and Jimenez made a great play, and it was just like and everybody's head was, was flying off at their shoulders with, oh, my God, where's this defense been? It was you know officially called the defense game. Where has this all been all these years, you know? Um, so – what do you do? I don't know. I mean, do you go back to having Cano play second base because he's the veteran and because he was the hottest hitter? So do you go with an infield of Pete, Cano, um, Rosario, and, and Davis, and then take Cano out in the eighth inning for defense, put Jimenez in, and then maybe have Jimenez start once a week, get Cano off his feet? I don't know. But then where does Dom slot in? It's like, Mike, you and I have talked about this so many times. There are a lot of usable parts on this roster, but it's not put together well. It's not put together to work in sync. There are just a lot of parts here. But the problem is there's always going to be something wrong. Like, like there, there are way too many round pegs and square holes. Think about what I just said. Jeff McNeil is your left fielder. Okay. Jeff McNeil is not an outfielder. Let's not forget that. You know, he's an infielder. Um, so you have infielders playing the outfield. You have too many DHs, it's just, it's just not well put together. And what ends up happening is you have these situations where you have guys you want to get in there and who should be in there, but then you have situations where for different reasons guys are going to be playing instead of those other guys, and I don't know. It, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I, to answer your original question, how will it play out, I think you're going to see Cano playing second base. I think you're going to see Jimenez going back to being a defensive replacement and maybe starting once a week for Cano and once a week for Rosario, maybe getting two starts a week. That's what I think will happen. And it's a shame because that's it is. the kids develop. It is a shame. And uh, as we always allude to, this is a poorly constructed team. A lot of a lot of serviceable parts, but, you know, it's not a well-oiled machine, or at least not yet. Uh, very, very, very quickly before we jump into the uh, the folks. Uh, Peter Alonso, anybody worried, Sam? Uh, he had, yeah, I mean, you know, he had a bad game today, but yesterday, uh, he, he hit a home run and he made he he got a couple of hits, I believe, uh, outside of a home run. So, you know, I think it's kind of baby steps with him. Um, we're winning right now, so the pressure is a little bit less. I mean. We're winning right now. We won a series right now, let's just say. Um, and I think his defense, we was kind of, uh, they were talking about it on, on uh, the radio today about how there's these little moments where you see, and I think it's a ball that got by Pete, um, where you see no matter what kind of strides he made last year, sometimes the defense does get exposed. Um, and, and going to I, – I wanted to say this because it popped into my head when, when Rich was just talking about defense and how undervalued it is. You know, even though they've gotten all these different defensive metrics and they've tried to 
create a, a, a sort of way that you can actually statistically value defense. Um, it, it, it's still the Keith Hernandez's are going to be undervalued from a Hall of Fame perspective. It's just still how it is. And, you know, people forget how important run prevention is. Of course, you, you have, you're, you're not going to win the game. It's going to be 0-0 in the 10th inning. Of course, that's the deal. But you still have to prevent those runs if you're ever going to score a run. And that's, that's just – so the, the fact that defense has been so improperly valued over the course of, of uh, time is just beyond me. It doesn't make any sense why people would so be so dismissive of it. And we're talking about Omar Vizquel and, and how Jimenez compares to him. Um, but going back, you know, looping back to Pete Alonso, and it just made me remember about that defensive issue uh, today. I, I am not worried, and I do think the fact that they've, they've started to win has taken a little bit of the pressure off of him. And one of the reasons why we've been winning, too, at the same time, is because he, he's been getting bigger hits. So I'm not, I'm not that worried at all. Uh, and I think he's just been pressing, and he just needs to, you know, keep watching some tape, go compare what his swing was like last year compared to what it is this year. Because, of course, you know, I, I'm hardly ever able to watch uh, SNY, but one of the times that I, I did catch it, they were doing one of those compare and contrast split-screen type things. And there is certainly some, some stuff off from the way he was swinging last year to the way he's swinging this year. So uh, I, I'm not worried about it, but he does need to do his homework. Rich, they call it the sophomore jinx. So the polar bear, what say you? Um, I think he'll come out of it, but I am concerned right now. I, I think you think about where he is. You know, Pete has hit, I believe, second, third, and fourth this year so my point is he's in a part of the lineup where a lot is expected of him and he's really struggling I mean you know he's got two home runs and they were both very similar they're both you know line shots they weren't the big you know long fly balls that he typically hits but um he he's been he strikes out a lot and and with Pete it every now and then you'll see something like that he was he had four hits in a game in Atlanta where he he I believe they were all to right field. Great. You know, yesterday he got a hit to right field, or I think it was either yesterday or Friday night, base hit to right field in a, in a spot where that's what was called for. Great. But so you'll see a little glimpse of, okay, because if you think about where we were with Pete before this season, everybody was saying, well, he's not just a big, strong power hitter. You know, the guy hit almost 270 last year to go with those 53 home runs. I mean, this is a guy who – um, who has tremendous power, but also acquitted himself as a guy who went the other way, you know, a smart hitter, all of that. Well, you're not seeing that right now. I mean, you're seeing little glimpses of it. Like, you know, like I said, he'll go to right field, he'll get his base hits. You're seeing that in very small glimpses. You're not seeing what we saw last year, not just the power, but that ability to go the other way, that ability to not strike out as much as power hitters typically do. So in the moment right now, I am concerned because he's kind of a black hole in the lineup right now. You know, you expect more from your two, three, or four hitter. So he's kind of a black hole, and he has been hurting them. Um, Being in that spot, I have reason to believe he'll come out of it because, again, he's a heady kind of a player. But for now, sure, I'm concerned more about what's happening in the moment or not happening in the moment. And, Mike, let me ask you something, too. Um, 
do you think there's any credence to, you know, studying video being a little easier for pitchers? Because you're seeing the angle that you're generally coming in to the, the batter. Uh, obviously, there's probably some, some behind home plate views that the, the ball players can get. But I wonder, and how, how it relates to COVID, whether it was just easier for people to make the book. Because, you know, obviously everybody's in the exact same position, but I've been also wondering, the, like, how Pete would have done, and, and we'll never know, but how Pete would have done going into a sophomore year that was just normal and we were starting in April. I don't know, and I, I guess we'll never know. Uh, it's interesting. The only thing I'll say is that throughout his minor league career, he's adjusted very well, and let's not forget uh, he led all of AAA in home runs and runs batted in prior to his rookie season in Flushing. Uh, you know, Sam, what you bring up, technology, well, that's available to everyone in, in, in their various forms, to pitchers, to batters, to fielders, to even runners. Uh, so advantage, no one. Everyone's working with the same set of tools, I think. Uh, this is a short, a shortened, uh, condensed season. Uh, and I, nor do we, uh, any of us have anything to compare by. Uh, and I'll just end it with that. You know, it's a great question. I think it deserves its own podcast. But uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how. No, really. I, I, I could spend all night trying to, you know, delve through that one. Uh, but we'll be here all night. So what do you say, guys? We buckle up and crank up the time machine uh, with your permission, and we'll go back right. to uh, 19, We'll go back to 1962. This is episode 62 of a Mexican podcast. So we figure we'd go back to that year and celebrate the amazings, the original and amazing. Uh, so many storylines about the 62 Club. Guys, I will start it this way. You think about the Dodgers and the Giants leaving New York, and right away the wheels were set in motion to bring National League Baseball back to New York City. Uh, and I, I, I will summarize the whole effort this way. If you think about it, the New York Mets bullied their way into New York City, quite literally. Uh, if you want to take it a step further, you know, Frank Ricky, William Shea, and Joan Faison uh, just barreled through Major League Baseball like Godzilla going through Tokyo. That's the way I see it. Titans taking on, you know, the archaic monopoly. Uh, of closed door deals, handshakes, and, and the way they used to run business. Uh, and as you know, <coughs> that being said, the 1962 Mets, we recently had Frank Thomas on the podcast. Fans listening at home, please, you know, sift through the archives. It wasn't too long ago, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Frank Thomas, well, what a fascinating listen. An original Met, nationally standout star with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, just a, just an incredible listen. Go back, take a listen. But I'll throw it to you, Rich. 
and the 1962 New York Metropolitan Baseball Club. Well, it's interesting because none of us, well, not one of us was alive at that point, and, um, but we've all heard the stories. You know, we've all heard that when the Dodgers and Giants moved to California that there was a big hole in the heart you know, of, of New York fans because, let's face it, there were more National League fans than American League fans. It just makes sense. You, had, you know, two National League teams, one American League team. So, and from what I've heard and what you've all heard, most people who were fans of the Dodgers and Giants did one of two things. They either continued to root for those teams from afar or they just followed baseball in general. Not a lot of people became Yankee fans, right? So then when the Mets came along, they played to that. You know, they played to that whatever percentage of, of the Dodgers and Giants fans did not maintain their loyalty when the teams went to California. The Mets played to that group. That was their target market. And, you know, you look at some of these statistics on that team, and, and I mean, we all know, you know the, the record for futility and all that kind of thing, most losses and all, 120 losses. But speaking about Frank Thomas, like you said, Mike, we had him on the podcast, the year he had would be good by today's standards. You know, 34 home runs, 94 RBIs, hit 266. Um, so you had that. So it wasn't a bad offensive team. You know, as you look down at some of these numbers, they really – it wasn't like a light-hitting team. It was a team that had some power. Um, they, they certainly had some guys who can get on base. You know, they, had, they had a lot of power. A lot of these guys were in the twilight of their careers. That's certainly true. But, um, but they definitely didn't lack for offense. Where they lacked was on the pitching side. You know, on the pitching side, you had, you know, Roger Craig, who, who had, you know, over 20 losses. You know, you had Jay Hook. Guys like that, you know, Roger Craig, 24 losses, Al Jackson, 20 losses, Jay Hook, 19 losses, Bob Miller, another starter, uh, 12 losses. So they really struggled for pitching. So it was a team, you know, cobbled together. I assume there was uh, a draft among the existing teams, as there would be now if there was expansion. And the Mets took a lot of uh, aging veterans who were not protected, and they took a lot of those guys on the offensive side. And then for for pitching, they just really struggled, and they, they had nothing. And hence your 120 losses. So um, I, I don't think the fans took them all that seriously. You know, if you had to be a, a fan of the Mets at that point, you know, if that's where your loyalty is, you said, okay, I'm going to follow the National League team. Um, I don't think you went into the season thinking that they were going to compete, but um, it was nice to have National League baseball back. And I think that's what we all would have felt, you know, that it, it's it's kind of like this season, you know. We we were without for so long, and we're just taking this for what it's worth. You know, we're just happy to have it, and that's probably the way a lot of the fans felt. What I find most interesting about those early Mets teams, 62, 63, even 64, was the number of one and two run games that they lost. I don't have that number in front of me, but that's legendary, that they mm-hmm. lost an incredible number of games by one or two runs. And what what does that tell you? It tells you your pitching is bad. It tells you that your bullpen is bad. Um, so, you know, they just weren't able to put a team together. And it's ironic that the hallmark of the Mets come the late 60s and pretty much through to present day became pitching. It was pitching that, you know, held them back early. And then the hallmark of the organization became pitching. So, I mean, those are my reflections. You know, I wish – I wish there was a way to teleport ourselves back in time and go to a game at the Polo Grounds. I would have loved to have done that at some point. Um, you know, just see what that ballpark was like, see what, what it was like to be there and watch an expansion team. You know, we didn't have a chance to do that. 
Um, but um, but yeah, that, that, those are my reflections. And and I'm just gonna hop, hop right into it too because it's so interesting about what Rich says in terms of the pitching being bad was that a lot of those losses, uh, and Frank spoke to this too, and, and I've seen it uh, uh, a little shameless plug, Faith and Fair and Flesh and Greg Prince uh, has talked about this numerous times too, that it wasn't just the pitching in those one or two run games. It was the fact that 50 times they left the tying run, either on the tying or winning run on base or on deck. So during those one or two run losses, they had opportunities to, to blow the game open. Uh, and instead they blew the game. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, very, it's a very interesting team to look back on and, and wonder because it created this narrative about the Mets that the Mets have not been able to shake themselves. And I think that if the Wilpons accepted the narrative a little bit better and played into it, they themselves might not be making these 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 decisions that look like not only are they tone deaf to the team that you actually own, and especially coming from a Brooklyn Dodger fan who understood what this team meant to people in 1962, not 1957. And, you you know, I'm going to look all the way back, uh, uh, Mike, to what you were saying about the old way of doing things. What's so interesting about what these executives were doing in terms of the old way of doing things is the fact that Branch Rickey was part of the executives being that way. Uh, there's a famous story where Pete Reeser, who could have been one of the greatest ball players of all time, was one of the greatest ball players of all time, but unfortunately the numbers didn't translate because he got injured all the time. There's, there's a famous deal that was under the, the, the desk between Branch Rickey and Larry McPhail when Judge Landis, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner at the time, in 1938, uh, said that uh, Branch was operating minor leagues illegally and that he had signed these kids under false pretenses and that he made 100 free agents. And Branch Rickey was like, hey, Larry, scoop this kid up for $100. He's the only one that I care about. And here you, uh, you know, 20 years later, Branch Rickey immediately puts his, his hat in, into the, the fire to get the Continental League here, which is basically what the threat was. It's basically, we want a New York team. We're going to bring a New York team by creating an entire league. That's how much we care about this if you guys aren't going to do it yourselves. And it forced Major League Baseball's hands. And with, along with Joan Payson and along with William Shea, and remember that Joan Payson was the only vote to not leave for the New York Giants, they created, they got the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club together. And it, it's, it's fascinating that so many different narratives were created in 1962 that still hold up to this day about this franchise. And hopefully the new owners can do something about remembering that and celebrating it in some weird New Orleans funeral type of way. Uh, or they're just going to keep repeating history over and over again. Metsy, Metsy. Not Mama, not Daddy, Metsy, Metsy, Metsy. Uh, the only thing I'll add is, folks, on YouTube, two games, 1962. One of them is the Giants' first time back at the Polo Grounds against the Mets, 
a great listen. If you want to really get a sense of the crowd, listen to that game because the crowd comes through so well. The ovation for Willie Mays. Uh, otherwise, the fan support received by the Mets was overwhelming. Such a great listen. That game and the Dodgers' first game back in New York since leaving Brooklyn. Uh, on this day, I believe it was in May, they played a doubleheader, and on YouTube is game two. Well, on this day, Gil Hodges hit three home runs, and he hits one of them on the YouTube game, game two. Uh, and again, the crowd reaction, I mean, they just go completely nuts, bonkers. Great listen. Go back to 62. Listen to those games. Guarantee you, uh, you won't be disappointed. Such an enjoyable listen. That being said, uh, let's move into our last word. Before that, I will ask you guys. Uh, uniform number, ask, uniform number. I know it's a short uh, list, the uniform number. We're not prepared for that. We didn't plan on it, man. Why did you go off script? Come on. Uniform number. Rich, number 62. Well, Are you prepared for that? I, yeah, I was looking it up. I was playing with it a little bit. Um, not not a lot of names that we necessarily know. The, the one thing, um, the one name of a guy who's currently pitched last night, uh, Drew Smith. Um, so Drew Smith, you know, if so, Drew Smith. They got him from Tampa for Lucas Duda, and I remember when they got him, hard throwing kid. You know, I believe he was in Double A at the time. Okay. Um, so he comes up and he has a cup of coffee, and then lo and behold, he has to have the dreaded Tommy John surgery. So he missed all of 2019. Um, but he looks, you know, he's throwing really hard now. You, his body of work is so small, so it's hard to say what, but I'll, let's say this. Um, Sandy, you know, made a deadline deal. It was very close to deadline. It was late July um, when he was taking part of the 2017 team. And um, and so if this turns out, look, let's face it, Duda did not do much for Tampa, and he really didn't do much when he left the Mets anywhere. I'm sure, he was on the Braves a little bit, but he didn't really make a contribution. I don't believe he made their postseason roster. So if Sandy got a usable part for Lucas Duda, um, and again, the jury's out on Drew Smith, but you know, t- tip of the cap. I mean, really, tip of the cap to Sandy for that one. And I've never been the hugest Sandy Alderson fan. But you know, you'd have to give him credit there. Eric Goodell, um, best thing I can say about him is he, you know, obviously a lot of jokes about sharing the uh, same last name pronunciation-wise, not, not uh, spelling-wise, as the commissioner of the NFL. So a lot of people um, have got a few laughs out of that. So Eric Goodell, I actually liked him. You know, right-handed reliever, seems serviceable. You know, not a high-leverage guy, but a guy who can give you a couple innings. So Goodell. Um, Scott Copeland is a name that uh, was with the team for exactly a day, and I can't tell you that I know who he was. I think he was a pitcher. <laughs> That's um, 2018 for you. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, Hubie Brooks. Well, Hubie wore the number. He was a September call-up in 1980, and he wore it for three days before getting a real number. So, And, and you know, his name came up earlier, and it's kind of ironic that his name yeah, came up. And yeah, now we're I had no idea. Um, but Hubie was a guy that – you know, Hubie and Mookie came up at the same time. Mike, I'm sure you remember that. Um, they came up at the same time. And you really, you know, 1980, you really said to yourself, all right, well, they've got something. They've got something on the farm in Hubie and Mookie. And Hubie had a damn good career. You know, hard-hitting shortstop, you know, hit, hit more than most shortstops would. 
Of course, he played third base. He came back to the Mets. He played some outfield, played some third base. Why does that surprise you? A guy playing out of position on the Mets, right? So, um, so but Hubie had a second tour of duty, and he did just fine. So Hubie Brooks was a guy I, I always really liked. I liked him when he came up. I liked the fact that he was not a defensive liability, but yet at the same time, he was an offensive-minded shortstop, which is fairly unique. So I like that about him, and uh, yeah, good number, uh, 62. Not a lot of guys, but but Hubie wore it for three days proudly. I love Hubie so much. And, uh, I was actually, go ahead, Sam. No, no, please tell your story. No, very quickly. I was at that game uh, when he extended his his hitting streak to I believe it was either 22 or 24 games. I think it was 24 games. Uh, you know, back then that was a, a really big thing. Not much else to root for during those years. Yeah, Tim. All I was going to say was that uh, I just want to give a shout-out to John Springer, who put together the ultimate Mets uh, uniform list. He finds these little details about Mets history that baseball reference does not have, that Hubie Brooks once wore number 62. And I had no idea when mentioning him earlier that he was going to be coming up on the uniform numbers. So, uh, fun coincidence, and thanks to John Springer. And continue, please, Sam, if you will, with your final well, word. It, my final word is consistency. You know, I think we all strive for it in our lives. We all try to figure out some sort of consistent plan for operating. That's what the Mets need to do. That's what the Mets need to do coming off of beating the first-place Marlins. I know that sounds weird, but that was currently the case. And you know what? They were playing well, and we've had trouble, as the Phillies did last year especially as well, um, beating these guys. And and let's also throw it out there that maybe Derek Jeter is not doing a terrible job down there because there does seem to be some talented players coming through the Miami Marlins organization right now. And so it's, it's interesting to see how this is all going to play out, but good on the Mets who lost that first game miserably, miserably. And they were able to bounce back with two real character building wins for the 2020 Mets, wherever COVID-19 as well as the Mets take us from here on out. Rich, I want to end the show on a Mets note. That's why I'm going to jump in here with my final word. And mine is happy anniversary. I'd be remiss. You know, we do a lot of podcasts, and I'd be remiss, me personally. We didn't say happy anniversary to Negro League Baseball. It's been around since the 1880s, and there were circuits independent, east and west. But in 1920, Rube Foster, you know, after several attempts and long, long contemplation, finally started up the Negro National League in 1920. That was 100 years ago, and I just want to say happy anniversary to them. This is the summer uh, of that celebration. Uh, You know, a lot of great history there, especially locally. You know, uh, I'm delving as we speak into the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and then there's the Newark Eagles with Monty Irvin and Larry Doby. Uh, You know, a lot of Hall of Famers that came from the Negro Leagues, and a lot more members of the Negro Leagues that should be in the Hall of Fame. So, again, happy anniversary, and on that note, Rich, I'll pass it to you. Final word. Um, consistency. That, that's what we need to see from the Mets for the next, uh, well, for, for the last three quarters of this abbreviated season. You know, they, they started out 
poorly. Um, and what we need to see now is we need to see everything click together. You know, they, uh, the starting pitching will be the Achilles heel probably. We need a consistent performance out of the bullpen. The offense needs to do more of the situational hitting that they've been doing and stop leaving so, much, so many runners on base. And they have to find a way to, to massage, to use your word from earlier, massage that starting pitching staff to get them through the next couple of weeks until they can get everybody healthy, hopefully. So they just need to play consistent baseball. You, know, you can't have this, okay, we're scoring, but Rick Porcello is getting bombed, or where the starting pitching was okay, but the bullpen came in and blew it, or, or something like that. They just have to put together consistent baseball and get themselves righted. You know, they're 7-9 and nine now, okay, but the problem is, you know, that the quarter season's already time to correct it. And they, they just, they've got the parts, like we talked about earlier. They just have to get people, they just have to get the whole thing clicking consistently. So that's my final word. All right. You know what they say, baseball mimics life, and life mimics baseball. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, baseball knows it. We know it. Everyone be safe out there. Continue to follow protocol. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for your time. Thank you on behalf of Rich and Sam. And uh, speaking of Rich, Sam, take us home. Let's go Mets. Till the next day we say that in City Field. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.